You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to The Build, a brand new season of Opening Soon. We're your hosts. I'm Jenny Goodman. And I'm Alex McCreary. Do you want to tell our listeners about what we used to focus on in past seasons of Opening Soon? Sure. So each of our episodes in past seasons, I think we've got over 100 now that you can go on and uh, listen to later after you've listened to The Build. But basically, um, each episode has focused on a singular chef, restaurateur, media personality within food, or, you know, like an accountant or a lawyer, everybody that sort of plays a part in getting a restaurant open. There are a lot of reasons why to do that, why not to do that, but we really, that really sort of guided our vision to become the neighborhood bakery mm-hmm. in every neighborhood, as opposed to being in very high volume, high rent areas. Mm-hmm. They offered a turtle soup here, and so they would get the turtle shipped in live. These were big animals, and keep them alive in the basement until it was time. We were just throwing out dough, I fucking hated it, and... Uh, <laughs> And the challenge with that is that you're picking out this one singular piece that they've either done really well or have reflective memories of being challenging. Whereas this season, we're going to do something a little bit different. Which is called The Build, where we're actually going to follow one chef on his journey to open a brand new restaurant in real time. So you'll get a real life peek into some of the emotional highs and the lows why things went well in real time, how things get delayed in real time. And we'll get to follow this journey week after week from the moment that they signed the lease until the doors are actually open. We're excited to bring everybody on this journey with us. It's been really, really fun to record and to watch. This season, we're following chef Eric C., You might have heard of Eric through his many accolades, including James Beard Foundation nominations two years in a row, a rising star from Star Chefs, as well as Features and Bon Appetit magazine. Eric hails from New Mexico and is now a Brooklynite. Finding the right partner for our first season of The Build wasn't as easy as it may seem. It's a certain mix, I think, Jen, right, of a person that we know is a qualified chef that has the financial backing ready, that has the plan and the program to get where it needs to go, and then also to do it in a timeline that is functional for a podcast. So tell us, our listeners, a little bit about how Eric came to us and how we found Eric at the right time and the right place of his journey. Well, we've known Eric for several years. He's been a friend to Tillit, a friend of the brand, and just um, somebody we really admired, admired his food, admired how he approaches being a chef and restaurateur and building community, um, both in the queer space and for his employees. So after some text messages to Eric saying, I hear you're close to finding a space uh, back in November and asking how do you feel about being followed for the podcast? He was enthusiastic and willingly agreed to record with us. So we're really excited to bring you this journey and have Eric tell you about his journey in his own words. So let's listen in now. Uh, 
I was waiting for you to do the whole today is Tuesday. No, <laughs> no, no. Not today. Not today. Today we're basically we're gonna run through questions that are gonna sort of fill out the first episode. Okay. Tell us about yourself and your background as a food person, Eric. I have been in food since I could walk or stand next to a table. Uh, I've technically been in the industry for like 23 years. I started as a young entrepreneur waiting tables at a tiny airport uh, in my hometown of Albuquerque on the outskirts at a little diner inside of a small airport. How old were you when you were at the airport? 11. 11. 11. Is that legal? Yeah. Um, I was not on (laughs) payroll. (laughs) Uh, The way that it works, so my dad used to manage this airport. um, And on the weekends, he would take me and my sisters over there to work with him. And my sisters would hang out. There was a koi pond in the front. And so they would hang out with um, uh, the fish, feeding the fish. I went upstairs to the little diner and I would help. Yeah, I wanted to go check it out. (laughs) Did you get paid? Initially, it was just that I was keeping the tips that I was making. And then the chef found out, because it was just me and the chef. Um, and uh, then he found out how much I was making in tips and made me start splitting them with him. <laughs> what? I was really into like counting back money to people, too. And I was always like, I loved the feeling of cash. And I was really good at like mathematics. I, I always, when we ever went to Walgreens or anything, I'd always make the cashier count it back to me when I was 10. But it was the same thing. There would be like people just thought it was adorable, so I would get pretty good tips. Yeah. Uh, and I would just have like my little apron stuffed full of <laughs> ones. And then he was like, "Wait a minute, <laughs> I need some of that." <laughs> and my my pay significantly decreased once he found out about that. But um, <laughs> that is exploitation. Jeez. My whole life, I've just been in or around restaurants. I did some fine dining in my early 20s in Albuquerque, worked in hospitality and hotels, and started to make the transition into the kitchen around like the age of 25 or 26. Most of my experience outside of a fast food situation was uh, centered around front of house, um, which I I still really love. I love waiting tables. I love hospitality. But uh, I was in a culinary program at the community college in my hometown it was a two-year program, and it was like an all-inclusive bachelor's program. So you do the two-year program, and it was like a, a degree in culinary arts, but you did a like a hospitality or food and beverage management portion, a pastry portion, and a culinary section. But during my time there, I, I won a scholarship to the New England Culinary School. And so I dropped out of that program and moved to Vermont to start a new program there in Montpelier. And so I spent six months in Vermont studying pastry, was going to be off for a six-month period to uh, do an internship, and you get to choose where you go. I came down to New York because my brother lived here, and uh, I worked at Brayburn, which was in the West Village. It's no longer there. And then I also was interning at La Conda Verde. I finished my internship hours in like a month and a half because I just worked like crazy. Um, But I stayed in New York, made some connections. I was supposed to go back to Vermont and finish the rest of my program. But even with the scholarship, it was still costing me like $40,000 out of pocket to live there because it's, it's a very immersive program. Uh, so I had to take out a lot of loans just to survive. And being in New York and making $8 an hour, I, I don't know that our the newer generations will ever fully understand what it's like to, to work 80 hours a week and take home $200. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, I remember those days. 
but $8 an hour, um, I recognized that it was going to take me a really long time to come up with $40,000. So I was like, I am not going to take another semester there. And New York is definitely one of the cities that is network paramount to pedigree. And so I was like, it's not really worth it for me to go back to school. It, and rather I'd maintain or strengthen the connections and networks that I have here. That was more important to me. So I, I stuck around in New York and that was 12 years ago. I've worked in catering, private clubs, restaurants, had my own company, have my own company. Um, but yeah, that's a, it's been a journey to get here, but I've, I've just always had my foot in a restaurant no matter what I was doing. Amazing career so far. You, when you say it that way, I mean, and even when Alex started cooking here, you were making seven fifty an hour, and clocking out after forty hours for the week. So, it, working eighty, clocking out of forty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at seven dollars an hour, it doesn't go far. Yeah. Oh, I know. Yeah. Tell us where the concept from Ursula came from. Ursula um, is kind of a love letter to my hometown and my family and heritage. It's named after my grandma Ursula, who is still with us in Albuquerque, New Mexico. She's 89. She'll be 90 this year. Um, It was a pandemic pivot as part of that storyline, too. I had a cafe in Bushwick called The Awkward Scone. It was an herbal uh, tea-focused cafe and bakery. We had sandwiches and pastries, and I blended all the herbal teas there. And then I also had a a dessert-based catering company that we ran out of the same, same space. And I was using green chili in some of the pastries and there were a lot of New Mexicans that would come in and be like, oh, are you going to make burritos? I'd be like, no, I'm not going to make burritos. This place (laughs) is called the Awkward Scone. I don't have the capacity to have to explain to people why. Like, I already have to explain the name to everybody. And then if I'm selling burritos and it's just going (laughs) to blow people's minds. And in New Mexico, you don't really have to worry about that because you can get burritos everywhere and it doesn't matter what the name or concept is. Um, but I was like, I just, I don't have time for it. Uh, and then I, eventually I bent to the whim of the, the consumer and started making burritos and they were kind of a runaway hit. And we had gotten quite a few write-ups about them and we were very busy on the weekends. It was definitely like carrying the restaurant <laughs> was the burritos. So you're making burritos at the Aquascone. I didn't mm-hmm. realize that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, in a slightly different capacity, but, um, it was also kind of what kept the lights on during the beginning of the pandemic when we, when everyone was forced to close down. It was me and my ex-business partner that uh, were just running on the weekends doing delivery and pickups out of the front door, just doing burritos and a couple of pastries. Um, and then when we decided to finally uh, shutter the awkward scone and I was figuring out what I was going to do from there, at that time my focus was pastry. And I was like, I'm never, never going to find a job in New York, or nor do I want to find a job during the pandemic as a pastry chef. But nobody was hiring pastry chefs at that point. Nobody was really hiring at all. Um, and I didn't really want to have to uh, like be under the management of some other business owner that was trying to figure it all out because we were all just doing whatever we needed to do to survive. And I just didn't want to be part of that equation as a pastry person. So I was like, what am I going to do? And I thought about going back home to New Mexico. I took a three-week road trip with my dog uh, to New Mexico, but I, I went to some places that I 
have wanted to go, but have never really been a top priority. And since I was trying to stay away from cities and camp, I went like up to South Dakota and through Utah and Colorado and then spent some time in New Mexico and had a little bit of um, a revitalization, I guess, of my spirit and mind. And I was like, maybe I'll try. I like, I know I can sell enough burritos to, to make ends meet. And if it's just me and a small staff and I find a small space, like we can, we can make this work for the next year and then figure it out. If it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. Um, but nobody really knew what was in store in terms of further restrictions. If we were going to go back into any kind of, um, isolation period. And it just so happened that my friend Claire Sprouse had this space she wasn't using. Um, it was a really good deal and it was going to be a temporary situation. And I said, can I use this space for the next year to figure this out? And that's kind of how it happened. It's a good origin story. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Up your marketing game and support nonprofit food radio when you put your brand on the HRN airwaves with a business membership. HRN is committed to spotlighting small businesses that keep our community vibrant. When you become an HRN business member at the $500 level, you'll receive on-air mentions on HRN podcasts, shout-outs on social media, listings on our website, and more as part of our thank you package. By becoming an HRN member, you'll help sustain our mission to transform the way people think about food. In return, HRN will shine a light on your work in front of an audience of food enthusiasts, industry insiders, owner-operators, and decision-makers. Become a business member and make your tax-deductible donation today at heritageradionetwork.org slash B-I-Z. How long between closing the Awkward Scone and opening the first Ursula? We closed the Awkward Scone on June 7th, I think was the last final day. Um, And then I did a couple pop-ups. I did two of them, I think, at Hunky Dory. That's actually kind of how I really landed on doing like leaning into the Mexican food and my heritage was that I did a couple pop-ups there. One was like a breakfast burrito focused one, but then we did one where we were doing sopapillas and other New Mexican food and they were both really popular. So I was like, Oh, maybe there's a need for New Mexican food in this market. Uh, but there was a closing June 7th and we, I decided on reopening in the first week in August and we were open at the spot on Sterling September 30th. Wow. Two months. We turned that space on Sterling around in five weeks. Wow. And was there ever a question on what the name was going to be? No. Uh, I knew that if I was going to do New Mexican food, that it had to be Ursula. We had had some conversations in the past about, like, who's back at the uh, catering kitchen when Lonnie was around and uh, working with us over there, talking about, like, whose grandma had a good name for a restaurant. (laughs) And... uh, I was like, Ursula, that sounds like a good name. Will there be a scone at Ursula 2.0? I th- so the <laughs> blue corn almond scone that we have there now was a standard and one of the most popular ones at the Awkward Scone. And so that's been with me for like five years because I was making it for events too. Um that scone, I think, will 
stick around. We're going to have to limit the pastry program at the new spot. Because? Because of space. And just because we're going to be adding the dinner program, which will then have a small dessert list. So there's going to be a need for the reservation of space and labor for the dessert menu, too. But donuts are one of our biggest sellers over there. So I definitely still want to do those. And the scone for me, that's they're popular. There are people that come just for that. But that's also like one of those things. It's like this, this kind of started the fire. I have to keep this going around. What makes a New Mexican donut? Nothing. <laughs> when there's, there's nothing. There's no twist on it? No, we do. Um, sometimes there's like a, a Southwestern-inspired flavor to it. But um, like right now, there's a pistachio and fennel one. And then there's um, a pineapple with toasted coconut. Will there be burritos all day at Ursula 2.0? <laughs> all day or till 2. Um the reasoning behind it at the new spot, or I mean the old spot, was that that kitchen is tiny and we can really only um, work with a very small amount of space. And the moment that you start adding all these lunch menu items or all these other things, we, we need more space to hold all of that. Um, and it just gets really chaotic. And this was not supposed to be a burrito shop. It was supposed to be like a New Mexican-inspired cafe. And I also wanted to introduce people in New York to Stuff Soap Ipeas. And it was kind of a slow build for that, but now we actually we sell a good amount of soap IPs at lunch, and we have people that come in just for those. Um, but it took some some convincing of people. When we first started, people would get very upset that we wouldn't serve after twelve. But we it was one a boundary for us in terms of like physical and mental limitations, because uh, on Sundays we'll sell like two hundred and fifty burritos in three hours. And that's that's very grueling and demanding on the whole staff. And so it's not really, I don't find it to be very fair to have to extend that by another two hours for us in that space. Um, so was, that was part of the limitation. But also I was like, but this isn't a burrito shop. Even though that's what we're known for, I wanted it to be a New Mexican restaurant or cafe. And this was about me selling other parts of the story to you and not just a burrito. We'd probably make a lot more money if I just sold burritos, but that's not what it was about. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and then we'll be back with more The Build on Heritage Radio Network. When it comes to creating a culinary masterpiece, the right cookware can make all the difference. That's why Maiden Cookware has dedicated themselves to designing the highest quality, most durable cookware on the market. Their products are crafted with generations of expertise, the finest raw materials, and are built to last, so you can focus on creating the dishes of your dreams without worrying about your equipment failing you. Their cookware and tableware is used by more than 2,500 restaurants and high-turn hotel concepts. Maiden has five-ply stainless clad. It's nearly indestructible and has unparalleled heat retention, making for even heat distribution. Plus, they have an extensive collection of knives, bakeware, glassware, plateware, and more. It can even handle up to 1,200 degrees. Maiden's hospitality supply program offers white glove ordering service through a dedicated account manager, exclusive discounts, commercial product formats, and the opportunity to join a community of chefs who are pushing the boundaries of culinary excellence. Reach out via their website to connect directly with their team and learn more. Madeincookware.com slash restaurant dash supply. 
Tell me about your priorities and your values as a business. I think that the priorities are sustainability in many different uh, terms of the word. I think there's a sustainability uh, centered around your your staff and the business itself. Um, the the culture and identity of the restaurant and that sustainability and then even just like the the local market and environmental sustainability i think that those are all um cornerstones and so when i say that about like the identity and the culture of it uh i think that that for me that means being respectful to the origins and the genesis of the cuisine itself um and while i think that there's a lot of room for creativity and playfulness i also want to I want to express a history and also uh, acknowledge a future for the cuisine and that's where you get to do the specials or the evolution of the food and I like to think of it as being um, rooted in New Mexico but with like a New York mindset or like through the lens of the Hudson Valley so like the fried chicken sandwich that we have is not New Mexican whatsoever but we make a green chili jam that goes on it New Yorkers love fried chicken sandwiches and so that was a uh, something to maintain a, a connection to the New York market, but then I was any. There's this joke that if it's like to New Mexicanize it, you just throw some chili on it. <laughs> so there, there's that part of it. Uh, but I also order the beans from Navajo-owned farms in New Mexico. Our blue corn comes from there. Some of our other ingredients, and then naturally the chili has to come from there. Uh, otherwise, I'm not being um, I'm not in integrity with the the brand and and its true identity. Um, so there's that part of it. There's the sustainability and the culture of the, the restaurant and the community and, um, and how we aim to be an inclusive space for, uh, both our staff and our, our diners that it's the kind of place that like anybody can feel safe and comfortable coming to, uh, that's in also in terms of like accessibility and pricing for our community, uh, there's something that everybody that pretty much everybody could get on the menu. You might not be able to get everything off the menu or the thing that you want per se, but I I've made a very concerted effort to make sure that the, there's something accessible price wise to everybody on the menu. Um, and that's something that we're working on for the new space too, even through working through the wine list and cocktail list. I'm putting a lot of effort into curating the wines and spirits that are all, um, either, Black, POC, woman, femme, LGBTQ+, LGBTQ, I can't even say my own <laughs> community's acronym, <laughs> LGBTQ2, L, I'm going to leave it as, as queer, <laughs> as a queer owned, distilled, brewed, vinted um, spirits, wines, and beers. Uh, but in leading with that, um, those tend to be at a higher price point too. And so then you're negating the accessibility, sustainability model. So we're working on making sure that we're supporting these groups uh, through most of the list, but I'm also working on uh, making sure that there's a, a wine by the glass that's maybe 9 or $10, while everything else might sit at 18 Those are the priorities for me in the business, is like trying to hit um, all these different levels of sustainability and, and connection to the history and the future and the community that you're rooted in. You said like you try to have your work be sustainable for your team, but you didn't say specifically what that means. 
Yeah, some of that comes back to having created those boundaries for um, the even just the burritos. And knowing that like as a business owner, it could be like, I could be making a lot more money, but it'd be putting our team under a lot more stress and pressure to keep up with that. And I do try to pay on the higher end that we that we can afford. Um, also understanding that the business model has to be sustainable. So I can't pay everybody $30 an hour, even though I would love to, but we'd tank our business in a month. Um, so I've been working on making sure that the model can sustain a certain wage that is above the minimum wage and above the living wage in New York. Cause those are two different things that people don't talk about. The minimum wage in New York right now is $15, but I think that what's considered a livable wage in New York is uh, hovering around $22 an hour. So all of my staff currently makes over that, uh, even in the back of the house. Did you have any prior conceptions or predictions about what this build specifically would look like? The 2.0, so we call it? No, because all the different spaces that we looked at were all completely different shapes and sizes. And we were talking about a few different concepts and maybe something that was like as bright and colorful and chaotic as the current spot. Uh, but then, um, when we sat into this place and when I went home for the holidays this last year, I decided that I really just wanted it to feel, um, like if you're from, if you're from New Mexico, you could walk in and you're just like, oh damn, I'm home. Uh, and it kind of reminds me of my grandma's house a little bit. And it reminds me of a lot of New Mexican homes and there'll be some, quirkiness to it. I'm really excited about the way the bathroom is going to turn out, some of the artwork that we got. There's a um, a few New Mexican artists, but there's a, a queer artist that I got this really incredible um, painting from of a, a limp wrist that is going to sit by the bar. <laughs> so there'll be there'll be a little bit of everything. Um, I I really enjoy getting to play with the two intersections of my identity like, like that. I'm so obsessed with this drawing or this painting because I was always told not to stand with a limp wrist when I was a kid. And so I just have such a, a strong connection to that imagery itself. And even as I'm standing or sitting here talking to you guys, my hands move a lot. And I, I tend to like toss my hands up like in a flare instead because I'm like, oh, they can't be down. Like no, no limp wrist. So when I saw this drawing, I was like, oh my God, I need that in the restaurant because it's just such an identifiable um feature or uh, characteristic or behavior for our community. And I just think it carries a lot of power in it, especially right when you walk in the door to see that. I love that. Why did you want to be involved with the season of The Build on opening soon? Um, I love hearing myself talk. <laughs> you should have led with, did you want to be involved? Uh, <laughs> Remember when I strong-armed you to be involved? Uh, no, I think it's... I, I, I think for me, it's also a lovely time capsule because there's so much that has happened since we first started talking and it'll be a really wonderful experience for me to cherish and like to go back and listen to this and be like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. Or uh, to remember those times when I was up and down um through this whole whole process and uh there's a lot of this stuff that new small business owners in new york they don't they don't know or haven't heard so i think it's important to have the information out there and i'm sure there's going to be a lot of other 
chefs and restaurant owners that can commiserate with the, the story. Um, but yeah, I think there's there's a lot of, uh, and I like you too. <laughs> fun, fun spending time with you. Yeah, I mean, that's what we hope, that it's a resource for other people, a little bit yeah. of therapy for you. <laughs> it's all of the above, <laughs> yeah. So Alex, tell us where we are right now. We are in the back of Roberta's in a shipping container. It's cold. The uh, customers haven't gotten here yet. But um, we are uh, in the midst of chatting with uh, Eric still. He is still in the middle of the build. Um, We have an anticipated, um, still probably aggressive open date, but we're excited for it to happen. Um, And we're here to keep following him through the rest of it. Uh, until he's got um, the open sign on the door and the food on the plates and the customers' butts and the seats. We will be here recording and listening and sharing with you. So if you're not already hooked on this season of The Build by opening soon, we have another treat for you. Dedicated listeners will know that we've talked about our goods experience in the past. It's a restaurant that uh, Jenny and I opened before our current business, which is Tillit NYC, and it was also the impetus for this podcast that you're listening to right now. We've never gone uh, super deep on the ins and outs, the successes and the failures of that, uh, but we will, in the process of talking with Eric and his progress of opening his restaurant, we'll sort of relate some of our experiences, whether they were good or bad, um, from that to his and what he's going through. So listen up. Yes, tune in so you can hear how we up before we got it right. (laughs) Coming up on this season of The Build. So on March 30th, he had passed away. And then on March 31st, he had come back to life. And then on April 2nd, he had passed away again. And I was like, okay, that's, again, it's very, please, my regards to the family. I don't even know how to receive this information. This is a roller coaster for me. I can't imagine what the family is going through. Capital Calls is like a very professional way to put it, but it was really like, Alex, you need to put more money in. We're out. We can't pay anybody. Right? It wasn't, there was no like, okay, let's sit down and have a discussion. He is the worst. Oh my God, (laughs) that guy. He's just so intense. He's, he actually is like a music producer and he looks like Phil Spector and he's so intense. Have you guys met him? And I had a calendar reminder show up today because uh, Lonnie put some important dates in my calendar. Um, and the reminder was that our goal was to open tomorrow. The Build is produced by Armin Spingen, Taylor Early, Matt Patterson, Alex McCreary, and me, Jenny Goodman. And a special thanks to Eric C. and Lonnie Holiday for all of their willingness and time to share with us on this journey. A very special thank you to the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts for their support of Taylor's work as the Julia Child Writing Fellow. Our audio engineer for this episode is Matt Patterson. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Opening Soon is powered by Simplecast. Opening Soon is a production of Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you, Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe. Do you want me to start and then you? Yeah, we'll each do it, right? Yeah. 
The Build is produced by Armin Spengen, Taylor Early, Matt Patterson, Jenny Goodman, and me, Alex. Okay. Hi, HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Funny.